Good evening. For those of you listening online, I'm Associate Pastor Mike Gilbert, uh, filling in for Pastor Rick this evening. The passage that we'll be in is Psalm 106, if you'd like to turn there. Psalm 106, verse 1 is our key verse. It's really the overarching uh, verse, kind of provides the framework for the psalm. Um, it says, uh, Praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Uh, some translations for mercy will say steadfast love or or his loving kindness is everlasting. So we're, we're, the, the title of the message tonight is Enduring Love. So again, praise the Lord, O give thanks to to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Um, so the, the, the enduring love of the Lord, not only because it's the theme of this passage, but also because I, I think that um, this is what the Lord would like us to, to be reminded of this evening. Psalm 106 is right next to uh, uh, the, the previous psalm that uh, magnifies the faithfulness of God towards his people. Psalm 106 six is a little bit different in the sense that it's more of a confession of sin, um, and it's a, it, it, at the very beginning, it's a praise to the Lord. At the very end of it, it's a praise to the Lord, um, and, and at, at the very first verse there is, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. So it's just his gratefulness in spite of this laundry list of sins, uh, very serious sins in the, in the history of Israel. It's a very it's just an encouraging passage when we look at it from that context in, in, in terms of the, the faithfulness of God. Um, so, uh, again, over all of this failure that's listed in this psalm uh, is the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, his, his steadfast, his enduring love for his people, uh, and, and that's the focus of it. So, this is the kind of love that it makes us love him so much in return, and, and when we see ourselves in the failures uh, the same sins that were committed by God's people then. Uh, it's, it's a love that wins our hearts. Uh, it, it inspires obedience. And in terms of the world that we live in around us, um, this kind of faithful love uh, this should have an effect in, in each of us that spreads the knowledge of God to, to a culture that is devoid of that, that is increasingly rejecting the God of the Bible and, and then all that the Bible stands for. So I think an equally key passage, more kind of in the background, it's not in this section, but it, it's, it's there, uh, is Proverbs 9, verse 10, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So when we talk about the fear of the Lord, it's, it's an awe, it's a, a reverence for who He is and, and for all that He's done. Uh, for us, it causes us to be to be mindful of his presence in, in every area of our lives, to, to avoid sin, to, to seek not to grieve him. Uh, it safeguards us against the, the dangers, the danger that is the, the wisdom of this world, because we're not interested in that. We're interested in the knowledge of Christ, understanding him, uh, a deeper understanding of him, and uh, a, this dependence upon him. Uh, and, and especially in, you know, when, when everything seems to be unraveling around us. This fear of the Lord, it doesn't make light of the mercy and the grace that he has extended to us uh, at, at the cost of his son. It doesn't want to hurt the Lord. It doesn't want to bring him grief. Uh, and it certainly doesn't want to have distance with him. Um, 
this thought, uh, although not mentioned specifically in the psalm, it stands out for us uh, as we go through it because it's a psalm of praise to the Lord for his enduring love toward a people that they so frequently they, they drifted from him in their hearts and, and, and in their fear of him. And they were chastened for their sin, uh, but they were not abandoned. And the desire of the Lord in, in, in doing so was it was always to restore them to the nearness of his presence, but it was not without repentance. So as we go through the psalm, uh, again, it's largely a confession of sin that it rests on this fact that, that the Lord is very merciful and will be, mer- will be faithful and merciful to his people through their, through their failures uh, and even their unfaithfulness to him. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So it's his nature. It's the Lord's nature to be faithful in spite of our faithlessness. And that comes out in this psalm very strongly, I think. Um, but it does encourage the believer. It encourages us as we go through it to, to search out, to examine our ways, to turn back to the Lord. That's to borrow from, borrow from Lamentations. Uh, if there's been any drift at all. And so the scripture tells us that uh, in James, it says that the word of God is like a mirror. And when we look into it, we, we see ourselves. So in a section like this, if, if we're doing well, we're encouraged to, uh, to continue and um, to be watchful and uh, to stay close to the Lord. And if we see areas that are maybe similar points of failure or concern, we're encouraged to receive the forgiveness of the Lord, and to enjoy his nearness. Now, these descriptions that are cataloged for us in this Psalm 106 uh, of the spiritual failure that took place in God's people in that day, they're recorded for us as examples so that we can avoid the same pitfalls. So we see how faithful the Lord was to them, and we see how quick he was to forgive, how, 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 how eager he was to restore, and we're encouraged by that. And so Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 10. says, Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. But another important reason we have this passage, uh, a passage like this, is that it helps us to understand the goodness and the mercy of God. As we we see it, uh, the greatness of his patience with, with a stubborn people, and his eagerness to to restore them when they turn back to him. So it's interesting that this psalm, uh, we find it uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. This was a period of time when King David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant uh, back into Jerusalem or into Jerusalem. This was after a period of separation. So this the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing the presence of God among his people um, uh, was brought back into Jerusalem and... Um, and so I think it adds significance to this psalm, particularly as it relates to uh, the forgiveness and the nearness of God's presence that's, that's enjoyed, especially after a period when there's been distance. So 
We'll pick it up, verse 1, verse 1 through 2. Actually, we'll read again. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all his praise? Well, this is praise for who God is in himself. He is good and he is merciful. And um, notice that it's his mercy that endures forever, not our sin. And we aren't we thankful for that? He has been so good to us. And the fact that we, you know, continue to survive, continue to have the blessings that we have is evidence of this. And if we receive what we deserve, we would just be completely lost. But he hasn't treated us as we deserve and has treated us much the opposite, showing us grace and extending salvation to us, assembling us into his body, which is the church. And speaking of the church, Paul uh, writes in, in Ephesians chapter 1, he, he, he speaks of us as believers, as the body of Christ, that we are to the praise of his glory. He uses that phrase three times in that passage. The first is in verse 6, and he's speaking of the Father, uh, the Father blessing us with every spiritual blessing in Christ and his choosing us according to his will. And it says that it, that, that, this, that it was done to the praise of his glory, of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And then in verse 12, speaking of Christ and the redemption and the forgiveness and the grace and the inheritance that we have in him, it says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And then lastly, in verse 13 and 14, Ephesians 1, speaking now of the Holy Spirit, it says, In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So we see in this the, the fullness of the Godhead as work in accomplishing our salvation and, and so much given to us as a result far beyond just our salvation. And uh, so verse 2 of the psalm says, Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? And reflecting on what all God has accomplished on our behalf, we, we, can, we can't adequately put it into words, but, but we do praise him. And um, so the Lord desires our all in return. Again, we're to the praise of his glory. And um, it's something that we want to do because it's, it's motivated by love. It's a high standard. It's never lowered, even though we fail to attain it. And the Lord is blessed by obedience, and, and we are blessed in the process. But we find that because sin has done so much damage that, that everything we do is contaminated by the flesh, and, and that can be discouraging. Some of us, I think, have a, a hard time feeling like the Lord is, is near to us because of our struggles with the flesh. And it's not because he is, he's gone anywhere. Um, and the fact that we recognize that there is a struggle with the flesh and are battling it out, that's, that's a demonstration of our love for the Lord. And it's, it's uh, a result of the fact that we do fear him. And when we fail, and though we fail, uh, he hasn't left us or distanced himself from us, but is there and he's helping us. He's a loving father. Psalm 103 as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And, and of course, uh, there, the verse we know very well in Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's, that's settled with the Lord. This, this psalm, it praises God for his goodness. Um, 
going back in Israel's history, after the Golden Calf incident, uh, which which was a, a, a deliberate disobedience against the Lord, and in this case there there was there was distance there, uh, the uh, place between God and His people because of their sin. Um, we recall that, that Moses pitched his tent outside the camp, and um, and God would meet him there. And if the people wanted to worship, they would have to go outside the camp to, to meet with the Lord there also. But it wasn't that wasn't good enough for Moses, and uh, he wanted the presence of God restored. He wanted it back like it was before. And this is the case with the believer when we've sinned, when we when we've blown it big. We're not content to live at a at a distance from God. We want to get it right, and uh, this is we, this is done through confession of our sin. David prayed in Psalm fifty one. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. And when we confess our sins, as we know the verse very well, he is, of course, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, as he did for the people. But when Moses was interceding for the people uh, with the Lord on the mountain, he asked a, a very special request of the Lord. He, he asked if he could see the glory of the Lord. And the Lord responded and said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And what the Lord proclaimed to Moses uh, as he did that is very insightful to his nature. And we read this, read this in Exodus 34, 5 through 8. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste, bowed his head toward the earth, and worshipped. So his goodness, it's, it is, it's his glory, his grace, and the mercy, and the forgiveness, and even his judgment. He is worthy of praise for all of it. So verse 3, Blessed are those who keep justice, and he who does righteousness at all times. Well, this is a... Uh, uh, essentially a beatitude indicating that that those who practice righteousness and walk in the will of God will experience the blessing and those who do not are self-willed and will suffer the consequences of their disobedience. Um, Life would be wonderful if we could, you know, do righteousness at all times, if we could be completely rid of sin. But that is not the case for us right now, unfortunately. However, the desire for it is there. It's in the heart. And that desire to please the Lord, it means very much to him. And so he has told us that his grace is sufficient, sufficient for our weakness, sufficient for our, for our shortcomings. And, um, and John gives us some perspective on this when he says in his first letter, he who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. So the one that lives obediently to the Lord is demonstrating that the Lord is has already done a work in their heart to give them a new nature. And and this is why when we sin, and we're not talking about perfection here, but when we sin, we can't be good with it because it, it goes against the nature of God that he, that he has given to us. And so I think it's uh, common for 
many of it, all of us, there are times when we just have days that it just hasn't gone well. And <laughs> the flesh has just seemed to overwhelm us. And, uh, of course, we know this, and we, we all experience it. Many times the, um, the sin that's been committed is, is known, it's known only to the believer personally. But it can be so discouraging still that uh, that person might miss opportunities to be used because they're, they're so hung up on the mistake that was made. And so, in that sense, we disqualify, we're disqualifying ourselves when God hasn't done that. And so, if you struggle with that, this psalm is a reminder that the grace and the mercy of God is, is so great in spite of all that. I mean, he wants to use you. And uh, the Lord is much bigger than, than our sin, and we can be assured it did not catch him by surprise. He's already dealt with it and gives abundant grace. The Bible says where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And I mention this because I think this can be a, a bigger problem than we realize. Um, time is short, we believe, and, and we, we, we look forward to the Lord's return. There's a lot of work to be done. And so if we're always taking ourselves off the battlefield, there are things that aren't getting done. And um, we need to be, be as, as Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And that's uh, not only when it's convenient or not, but whether you feel like a failure or not. Understand that the Lord is taking care of that. And uh, just be faithful to do what he's called you to do, and the Lord will make it count. And he'll certainly be faithful to you. Verse 4 and 5. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. O visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. So these, if you were to back up, take the first five verses, they seem to be the, the outcome of this the psalmist, possibly David, who wrote it, uh, contemplating the, this upcoming catalog of sins in the history of God's people. And so the psalmist has reviewed all of that and in essence is saying, Lord, since you were that good, and that faithful and that long-suffering to them, remember me also. And this is a testimony to the, the goodness and the mercy of God, His grace. And it also goes to show us that, again, our, our, our biggest meltdowns the Lord can use for His glory, even in the life of someone else. And um, so, uh, He's big enough to still make it work for His glory. So, the world needs this Savior. And the thief on the cross, he similar words, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the life of a believer that is crucified with Christ, meaning that they're submitted to his rule, to his will, is going to also attract lost souls uh, that will make them hungry for the grace and the mercy of God. And uh, this is because the Lord has not just visited the believer, but he lives within that person. And he's working to, to recon reconcile the lost a lost world to himself through them. And Paul speaks of this. This is a very great privilege that we have as Christians. And he calls it, he says, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And uh, his prayer for the believers uh, in Colossians is, is that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this kind of a walk, it comes from time with the Lord it comes from devotion comes from worshiping him that uh, he produces the fruit in our lives through his spirit and uh, it's the it's the kind of fruit that's nourishing it's it's attractive it's it's edifying 
uh, not just for us, but for others. And uh, whenever this gets backwards, whenever this priority gets backwards uh, and the, 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 the work or the service, the activity, it comes ahead of our time with the Lord, it comes ahead of our devotion uh, to the Lord, that fruit begins to rot and it becomes bitter. E.W. Tozer said, A worshiper can work with eternal quality in his work, but a worker who doesn't worship is only piling up wood, hay, and stubble for the time when God sets the world on fire. Very direct way of saying that, but that's exactly right. So it's, it's very important that, that we cultivate our own personal time with the Lord, our own personal worship and relationship with the Lord. Um, serving in the, in the ministry that God has called you to do, is a, it's a wonderful way to grow in your relationship uh, with the Lord and, and uh, specifically in your, in your knowledge of Him personally. Uh, he, he will work with you. He will bless you. He'll teach you quite a bit <laughs> about himself as his, his faithfulness uh, to you as you, you receive that as you serve. Um, and I, I know those of you who serve here in different ministries, uh, you've, I know you've experienced that. Uh, there might be someone, at, you know, last-minute schedule cancellation and someone the Lord moves on another person's heart and it just, you know, he just works it out. Or, you've, you know, you've had all these plans and it just, you know, it just, totally goes to shambles on Sunday morning, but then you realize after the fact that the Lord was in that. He was setting it up His way. He was rearranging things. And it's good, but there's also a very personal part of that, too. I think, uh, uh, you know, when we, when we serve, the Lord is, he, he ministers to us in a very personal way. Uh, and, you, and you can tell that the Lord is teaching you. He's leading you. He's teaching you to, to wait upon Him, uh, to, to look to Him. Uh, to be patient for him. And um, so our, our faith begins to grow this way. We begin to, to increase in our knowledge of who he is and how sufficient he is for every need. So now we come to the, the, the main part of the psalm, which is uh, the, the, starting in verse 6. And this, uh, this section, it, it's, again, it covers the bulk of the psalm. It's, it's a confession of sin that extends from the time that Israel was delivered out of Egypt uh, to the time that the psalm was, was written. And so it, it looks back, at, a, at again, as an unfaithful people that had lost the fear of the Lord. And uh, at the, the, also at the same time, it looks up at a very faithful God uh, that chastened them but never went back on his covenant with them. That's a lengthy section, so we're not going to go. <laughs> we're going to put them together as the events happened in, um, in, in groups. So the first group we'll take is verse 6 through 12. It says, When we, ha- we have sinned with our fathers, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up, so he led them through the depths, as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies, there was not one of them left. Then they believed his words, they sang his praise. So, this first section we come to, it remembers the the unbelieving, divided heart that surfaced in the lives of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. They, they left Egypt with boldness, the scripture says, uh, Exodus 14, but that didn't last 
very long. They, they had already been, uh, been led on a very long and difficult way through the wilderness uh, to, to avoid the, the land of the Philistines because God knew they weren't ready for that conflict yet. And they were, they were bold because of their deliverance, but they were not yet tested in their faith. And uh, oftentimes, especially early on uh, in our faith, uh, we can have a great zeal for the Lord and a desire to serve him, and it's, just, it's wonderful. But we have not learned yet how to be led. And uh, so how to listen to his voice, how to, to, to learn uh, to listen to his voice and to obey it. Um, he takes us as a process. It's an area that we, we're con- we continually learn throughout our walk with the Lord. And it's a very, very critical to the effectiveness of our service. So God then he brought them to a place they could not pass through um, because they were, they were blocked by the Red Sea in front of them. And then there's Pharaoh's army that's coming behind them. And all that boldness, it turned to, to panic very quickly. And so they, they complained to Moses. And they said, because they're... Were no graves in Egypt? Have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? I mean, you think about that, just that statement after all that had been done in Egypt, all the plagues and all that they had seen up to this point. But anyway, why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness? So, you know, when, when pursued by Satan, when pursued by the bondage of a, of a past deliverance, uh, here these people are so ready to give up on God and go right back to it and forget all those things that he had done on their behalf to set them free. And, um, you know, the Lord didn't rebuke their immaturity at this point, though. Instead, he just revealed more of his, his awesome power to, to them to deliver them. And it says, after this, they feared him. Exodus fourteen thirty one. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. And, you know, given the situation, I, I, I have to wonder if I would have panicked myself. I mean, I probably would have. I, I, you know, I know there have been too many times, uh, too many times that, that I've complained that the Lord's methods and uh, you know his ways are not comfortable. Um, they're not fast enough. They're, they, they don't seem. They, they seem to lead into an impossibility. And then there's that fear. There's that that panic that kicks in. And all of a sudden, there's we realize there's two natures that are competing for control in the situation. So it's this divided heart. It's uh, you know I'm divided and, and weakened at that time and forgotten all the Lord's past deliverances. And it's very very quickly that can happen. David said in Psalm 86.11, he said, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. In other words, let my self-will be subject to your will in every area of my life. That's what I want. Teach me to follow you, to fear and reverence you and and your power to deliver. And, and, And then even if you don't, to know that what you're doing is good, what you're doing is best, and is more merciful. So, again, the proverb, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Verse 13 through 18. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert and gave them their request. And he gave them their request. 
but sent leanness into their soul. When they envied Moses in the camp, and Aaron, the saint of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan and covered the faction of Abiram. A fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. So, in this section, again, as the psalmist, he's identifying with the sins of his the, his, the, the, the Israelites at that time, and he confesses this this discontent and the envy uh, that was found in his people. Again, after such a short time, the the people of God had forgotten these incredible works and deliverances that were done by God, and they began to doubt his ability to deliver them uh, when they got thirsty. Now, it certainly would not have been a sin to ask for water, (laughs) but the people were so angry with Moses about it that he at one point thought that they were going to stone him. And not only that, but they laid a charge against God too, and they said, is the Lord among us or not? You could just hear that defiant, rebellious attitude. They were so emotional because of their selfishness, because of their discomfort, that they, they paid no attention to the fact that there's the pillar of cloud that's been leading us. There's the pillar of fire. And they had no, no spiritual savvy to realize that the Lord has led us into this situation. Maybe we should find out what he's up to. And it can happen very easily when there's discomfort, when there's pain. A believer can begin to doubt God and, and then to not even recognize his leading. On another, another occasion, uh, they became tired of the bread from heaven, the manna that God supplied them each day, and they intensely craved meat, Scripture says. And this was um, apparently driven by a, a mixed multitude of non-Israelites that uh, also had come out of Egypt with them. We get that from Numbers 11. It says, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to the intense craving, So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. (laughs) So, I mean, it's like, who's going to deal with these people? But, so God gave it to them, but he gave them a plague with it. And, um... Well, what do we see in this? Well, one application I think may be that whenever the word of God is is attempted to be improved upon, you know, we, we, the man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So when we see that connection between the word of God and, and when it's attempted to be uh, improved upon or substituted with what the world has to offer or anyone else has to offer, it brings a wasting away. Uh, it, it brings leanness into the soul. And, um, and also it was the, the mixed multitude, those who were outside of Israel this, uh, that, that influenced this, this intense craving for the meat. And I think this is a reminder that as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. This was carnal mindedness. Romans says that to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And this also, I think, can, can happen very quickly to, uh, to a believer who's not careful about their associations. In the, in the case of Dathan and Abiram, these men were very similar in their actions to, to many of the 
false teachers. I think I think you can see a parallel there that creep into churches today, and they, they challenge the authority that's been established by God. Peter describes them in his second letter, Second Peter two. Then the Lord, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh, in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous self-willed they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries so they don't fear god and they don't want and they they want to lord it over his people so here's this this envy in ministry that we see with these men it's a very serious thing the lord has given uh, he's given gifts to each person in the body of christ and we're to use those giftings for his glory and none are more important than another and god has set each person into the body in a particular way according to his will and to challenge that is to challenge God. So there's, there's no taking sides, there's no grabbing position in ministry, that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> verse 19, 19 through 23. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, Awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. So here we see uh, idolatry. Um, so the psalmist, he recalls how, how quickly the people turned aside from, from the word of the Lord and, and made idols for themselves and, and uh, that were material and lifeless. They they did this so soon after, you know, here's this, this, this terrifying experience that took place on Mount Sinai when God came down uh, in the cloud, in the, in the fire. Um, this was visible to the people, it says in Exodus 24. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So they, they were able to, to see this with their own eyes. It's just hard to imagine that after that visible manifestation of the, the presence and the holiness of God. Uh, not to mention the Red Sea uh, crossing and the, the, the miracles performed in Egypt that they, that they would lose their fear of him so quickly. And Moses was still on the mountain uh, with the Lord even. And I think this goes to show just how susceptible uh, that uh, an individual can be to, to attempting to, to make for themselves some kind of a substitute deliverer. And this can be in the form of any number of things. Uh, it can be uh, much less subtle to, to detect because a person can be very good at justifying whatever that uh, <laughs> sacred cow may be. But if it takes the place of the Lord in any way, it, it has become an idol. And uh, Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in the account of, <laughs> of this incident, it says that the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. This brings to mind, um, I think, much of what is uh, could be happening in Christianity where, where sound doctrine is not endured. Paul warns Timothy of this, Second Timothy 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. So they're 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 heaping up for themselves teachers. They're they're wanting their own 
brand of Christianity, and uh, it's unbiblical. And this act of disobedience uh, to the Lord, it, it also brought judgment. And, um, you know, a lot of people lost their lives because of this decision to come up with, with their own deliverer uh, instead of just waiting on the Lord. And um, it reminds us, I think, of how, how often there is damage, how often there can be scarring and injury um, to others for simply just getting tired of waiting on God uh, to provide direction. And um, remember that behind this and, and over top of all of this is the faithfulness of God, the mercifulness of God. He, didn't, he, never, he did not forsake uh, these, these people. And uh, the Lord is faithful, and he helps us to recover from things like that. But, but we, may we avoid the temptation to look anywhere else but to him. Verse 24, Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents, and did not heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness to overthrow their descendants among the nations and to scatter them in the lands. So here the the psalmist is confessing the the faithlessness of the people uh, when they had their their opportunity to enter the land of Canaan. This was a big deal. And um, they were on the brink to be able to go in to enjoy all that God had prepared for them, uh, including victory over their enemies, but instead they drew back and they did not believe God. And God said that he would judge the people even more seriously than he did. But Moses interceded for them and he pleaded for the people on the basis of God's long suffering, his abundant mercy. And uh, the Lord relented uh, on that to some degree. The judgment was still severe. And none of that generation came out of Egypt that came out of Egypt was able to enter the promised land. And the reason for that was unbelief. So, again, we look at that and we say, okay, well, what's the what is the application to us? And we want to know, do we have pockets of unbelief anywhere in our own lives? Because it's a serious thing to, to doubt the Lord. And we as believers in, in Christ, we, we have a spiritual inheritance in him, the scripture says. And that he, is, he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And this inheritance is to be entered into in, in this life uh, where the battles and the, the giants and the difficulties that we face are. So when we go through the trials, there is rest and a peace that, that we can enjoy because of Christ and uh, believing that he will see us through. But unbelief prevents us from entering into that rest, though. And, and so the writer of Hebrews warns against it, Hebrews chapter 4, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it, For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So the things that that life uh, throws at us that can be scary, obviously, they can be very overwhelming, and uh, we're often tried quite a bit in this area. And um, so... What this passage does for us is to remind us that there is, there is sufficiency in Christ in whatever we face. And that it, it takes diligent effort on our part to defy that unbelief and enter into the rest that he provides. Again, Hebrews 4.11, it says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example 
of disobedience, unbelief. Verses 28 through 31. They joined themselves to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped, and that was accounted to him for righteousness to all generations forevermore. So this confession by the psalmist, it's very thorough. He's, he's really not leaving anything out here. And um, it's, it's, it's important. It's very important for us to be honest with God. He knows anyway. But um, leave no room for hypocrisy in our, in our prayers. Just be honest with them. And in this section, uh, he's recalling this, this snare of, uh, that, that Balaam had set for the people of God and the Moabites that they laid for Israel. And, um, and getting them to, to join in their immorality and their, their, their pagan idolatrous worship. And um, it reminds us of Satan's work. It's very corru- it, 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 his work in corrupting the people of God is very subtle. And, and um, you know, as it's been said, if he can't destroy the, the, the church or the Christian <clears throat> as the roaring lion, he will come as the deceiving serpent. And, um, and this is what happened in this instance, Numbers 25. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. And, um, you know, oftentimes I think a, a Christian can be more interested in, in, in being a, a good neighbor or not offending someone than, than standing firm on what the Bible says, what they know to be true. And... Um, whether this is in a, a church or in an individual believer's relationships, it, relationship, it leads to corruption. And this was the case with the church at, at Pergamos in Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. Uh, it says that they were where Satan's throne was in the sense that uh, Caesar worship was instituted there, it was practiced there, it was enforced there, and uh, the church was persecuted to a great deal. And it, for a long while it remained true to God, This the outward persecution was not it was not they, they were not backing down <clears throat> and um, but although they couldn't be defeated from the outside it's apparent from what the Lord brought against them that the church was being corrupted from the inside and um, something had crept in that was causing them to to compromise and so the Lord addresses them in Revelation chapter 2 but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So much like Israel's compromise, this church had, had allowed the, the pressure of the culture around it to to draw it away from the, the truth of the word to allow immorality to exist uh, in its midst they they lost their fear of the lord they began to fear man more and and the fear of man is a snare the bible says the fear of god is the opposite it's safety proverbs 14 26 and 27 says in the fear of the lord there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge the fear of the lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. 
So the believer then is encouraged uh, when reading this to look to see if if there is compromise, if there is a, even opportunity for it in our own lives. And if so, to uh, to understand the, the danger of it, the serious impact to us spiritually, and to to deal with it decisively, uh, like Phineas did, spiritually speaking, of course. Um, verse 32 through 33 says, They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses on account of them, because they rebelled against his spirit, so that he spoke rashly with his lips. So here the, the psalmist confesses the sin that they committed in provoking Moses, this provocation. And um, so in Numbers 20, the brunt of the, the blame has been placed on Moses, but, but here it's balanced out, showing that you know, God, he sees the big picture. He doesn't lose sight of anything. He's, he's not unfaithful to recognize the responsibility of sin and, uh, and where it needs to be assigned. And, um, and so here he holds the people accountable for stumbling their leader. And uh, it's a reminder also that as Moses was the lawgiver, under the old covenant, we as believers, we have received the, this ministry of reconciliation uh, that, uh, through Jesus Christ. It's more, and for that fact, it is more glorious. And um, the Lord will still use Moses in a big way uh, after his stumbling. And uh, he will do the same with us, even more so, uh, because uh, his grace goes so much farther uh, than, our, than our biggest sin. Verses 34 to 39 they did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. And so we read this and think, you know, we agree with the psalmist at the beginning. You know, Lord, remember me. If you can show grace and mercy and it goes beyond this and covers this, then I want that. And uh, and we have that in the Lord. And so uh, this covers a period of time that the people of God, they're now in the promised land. Uh, they were sent in as, as God's instruments of, of judgment on this very wicked culture that was utterly corrupt. Um, and they started well. They couldn't finish the job. And um, over time, there was, there was conformity that was setting into these, these wicked practices uh, of the culture. And that, that, that began to take place. And, um, and that is what is being confessed here, this conformity. And so uh, we look at these practices and that they participated in and were disgusted by it, were amazed at it. How could anyone who, you know, once enjoyed the fellowship of God, could they leave him for this? But uh, this, is what, this is what the record shows. And so um, we see these things practiced in our day. It's under a more culturally acceptable name, but it's still immorality. It's still the murder of children. And, uh, and Paul addresses, his, addresses the, the, the conformity to the culture in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And uh, so the, the culture, the world, it tries to do all that it can to influence, to, to shape our thinking of what's right and wrong, but, but God's word is what transforms our thinking so that we have his wisdom and can recognize the, the 
the dif- difference between deception and, and truth. And, um, you know, we're not authorized to destroy <laughs> people like Israel was in this, at the beginning when they came in, but we are instructed to destroy their arguments that set themselves against the knowledge of God and, and uh, to, to contend earnestly for the faith. That's our responsibility. But one other thing that we notice in this, uh, in view of this, again, this overarching theme of the passage, the goodness and the mercy of God, um, it is, it's just amazing that no sin is beyond his, his ability to cleanse and his desire to do it. And I think this helps us remember um, to, to love the sinner enough to, to look for opportunities to bring them the gospel uh, and to be eager for that, praying for that. Therefore, uh, verses 40 to 46, Therefore the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his people so that he abhorred his own inheritance. And he gave them into the hand of the Gentiles, and those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies also oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their hand. Many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry, and for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitude of his mercies. He also made them to be pitied by all who carried them away captive. So we see more unfaithfulness here. So we come to this final section of the confession, and there is a a description uh, likely of the the unfaithfulness of God's people during the time of the judges. Um, It brought about his chastening them but uh, he was always ready to hear that 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 small first small prayer of of repentance or that that this the slightest turn backwards back towards him and uh, and we know this about the character of god the lord the lord himself tells us about this in the story of the prodigal son and just the eagerness of god to restore and um of all that is written in this section uh the multitude of his mercies stands out the multitude of his mercies uh, all the sin, all the judgment, and there it is, the multitude of his mercies. And um, again, we don't read about his people's sin enduring forever, but we do see that his mercy does. And so David disobeyed the Lord, uh, we remember, when he numbered the people, and uh, he came under the Lord's chastisement for that. And uh, when he was given the choice of either falling into the hands of men or falling into the hands of the Lord, this is what he said in First Chronicles 21. I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of men. And um, so even in the Lord's chastening of his people, uh, it's, it's tempered by his, his love and his mercy. And then uh, the last uh, section there, verses 47 to 48. <clears throat> Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. So the psalmist closes this psalm with another it's another appeal to, to God's mercy, to gather them from, from where they've been scattered and oppressed. And, um, well, we have a similar desire to, uh, to be gathered together to the Lord, especially as, as we see um, wickedness that's increasing. But, but then again, there is work to be done here, and we're to, to do business until the Lord returns. 
And, um, and so that's what we're to do. So he mentions triumphing in praise uh, as the psalmist reflects back over the, the grace and the mercy of God and his faithfulness to them. And uh, he is vict- victorious in the end because, because God has been merciful, as, as are we, and uh, through Christ. So um, we remember Jehoshaphat, the good king Jehoshaphat. He's an example of this, this triumphant praise. Uh, we know the, the story, and as the army went out to battle, it was, it was led by praise to the Lord, Second Chronicles 20. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. And uh, this was a man that feared God, a man that was, that was confident in his grace and mercy. He certainly made mistakes, but he, he knew the Lord. He feared the Lord. Uh, he was confident in his grace towards him and uh, that he would keep his word, that he would be faithful. And God brought him a great victory. So uh, as we fight the, uh, the good fight of the faith and as we face the many battles in this life and both from within and from without, um, he's the same God today as he was then and uh, he always will be from everlasting to everlasting, the psalm says. So, so may we also fear him. May we know that he is good and faithful and uh, loves us with an enduring love and sing his praise. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy to be praised. You are wonderful and so faithful. We thank you for your word. We thank you for our time tonight, Lord. We ask that you get us all home safely. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.